This is my comeback. This is my comeback story. This is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to the comeback. We're back. So excited to be here with my friends Summer and Angeline. Our focus this week is women in recovery. So something very interesting that you may or may not know is that approximately the same amount of women are addicted as men. But unfortunately, only 10% of women ever make it to treatment. And there is a variety of, of variables and factors that, that keep women imprisoned. Um, but, but without getting into all of that, and we may end up going there before this podcast has concluded... Um, it's just a, a real miracle that, that both of y'all are in front of me and both of y'all have powerful stories of, um, how God intervened into your lives and, you know, it, and, and, and he, you know, it happens in, in a variety of different ways, you know, sometimes because of family intervention, sometimes because of legal <laughs> intervention, but whatever it, it, it was that got you here, thank God for it. Um, so I know the audience is is really going to be interested to know your stories. And uh, Summer, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a summary of how you got here. Yeah, so I grew up in a somewhat of a Christian home. <laughs> My mom always told us about Jesus and and God, and we would go to church, and I knew who he was, but we were not the family that went every Sunday and you know, it was more so like when we were going through a hard time, my mom would always make sure we would go to church. <laughs> that stopped when my mom and dad got divorced when I was eight. She stopped going to church because that was my dad's family went there and it was just kind of a No, that makes sense. Yeah, it just got real, you know, uncomfortable because of the the family dynamics. Yes. So we moved and we just never went back to church. My mom had a bunch of different relationships and my dad was never there even when they were married. He was an alcoholic and always stayed in the garage. He was like a hermit. <laughs> he never wanted to come to family get-togethers. He would leave at my birthday parties if there's a lot of people there. He just didn't want to be around anybody. And when they got divorced, he got even worse. He started doing meth and uh, other drugs. And he ended up being in prison, in and out of prison my whole life. And he was just never there. So I was missing that dad figure in my life for a long time. And, you know, my mom, she was in and out of relationships, too, with different guys. So I would get attached to one, and then they would break up. And I think maybe as a little girl, I was internalizing it as something was wrong with me because all of the dads that I had in my life were leaving. She met Bill, my stepdad, when I was probably 11. And they stayed together. They got married, and... I really tried to, like, I wanted to be his daughter so bad. <laughs> I remember, like, wanting that. Wow. And, uh, but, you know, it still left an emptiness because I knew I wasn't his daughter. The first time I drank, I was in seventh grade, 
And I remember me and my friend were talking about beer. My stepdad had some beer in the house. And she was saying how she just wanted to try it. She wanted to know what it tasted like. And I was like, I want to get drunk. <laughs> I had already knew. And it's not like I grew, grew up around like tons of alcohol and people partying. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't grow up with a lot of that. But it's like I already knew that that's what I wanted. And I drank that night and I got drunk. And, you know, I had that moment of like, this is what has been missing from my life. <laughs> and then it just started from there. It didn't matter what it was, alcohol, weed, pills. It was just whatever I could get my hands on at the moment, I, I was doing it. And same with even smoking cigarettes just to get me outside of myself. You know, even with boyfriends, I always wanted a boyfriend because I, I felt like that gave me worth. I had low self-esteem. Um, always grabbing for something to put inside of that missing piece, inside of that hole. I was turning 18, and I had met this guy. He was five years older than me, and he was an alcoholic. And so when me and him got together, it was like, that's where I really learned how to drink was from him. And I moved with him. We were engaged, and... Um, I moved three and a half hours away, and I put everything, my life, he was my God, he was my, I existed to live for him, to be his girlfriend, and, and partying. Like, that's what my life consisted of, was him and partying. And then me and him broke up, and I, like, went temporarily insane. <laughs> that's how I feel. <laughs> It was like I didn't know what to do. I had lost a person that I was living for, and all I had was alcohol, and that still wasn't filling me like it used to. The Lord just started, and at the time, I didn't even know it was the Lord, <laughs> but He started taking everything away from me, little by little. And I remember being so upset because my friends stopped talking to me. And I had been friends with these people for years. Like, all of a sudden, they don't want to be my friend anymore. They knew I drank. You know, there, nothing had changed. Why are y'all upset about this now? <laughs> like, like, why is this happening? <laughs> and uh, they stopped being my friend. and So then I was just alone, drinking at my mom's house, and I started going to church, which I had avoided church for years. I knew that when I would go, that I was going to, like, fall out on the floor crying, upset, because I knew what I was doing. I was running from him. I went to church with my sister, and it was like an old-school Baptist church, <laughs> and they did an altar call. And I went down. And I, I remember even thinking, like, I'm not going down. Like, it was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And all of a sudden, I was down there. I just prayed, probably for the first time, not being drunk, because I would pray sometimes when I'd get real drunk and be like, please, Lord, help me, help me stop, you know, when I'd be messed up. 
but I was sober and I told him that I was going to die of alcohol poisoning. I was gonna die of drinking and driving. I was gonna die of throwing up in my sleep and choking on it if he didn't do something because I couldn't stop. And that was the first time that I had soberly asked for help and meant it. And then after that, my whole life changed. Yeah, you know, I find that you know, really interesting. And, and just a point that, you know, sometimes I hear parents say, you know, it, it'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we will help them whenever they ask for help. And, you know, it's interesting that at some level you did ask for help. You cried out to the Lord. But when somebody is addicted, they have forfeited their ability to be able to choose. The drugs and the alcohol are then at that point choosing for them. And so what, you know, obviously is happening here is is God is is intervening in your life and is creating a situation that's going to, you know, eventually take you to a place of, you know, where you've got to go to treatment, where you've got to get help. So um, I want to circle back to that in a little bit, but I just think that's just, you know, you brought out just a really, um, uh, you know, something very important for, for parents to understand, you know, that there's a good chance, you know, that little Susie <laughs> might not ever on her own accord, you know, come and and say, hey, I'm I'm ready to go to treatment. And when that does happen, that's great. And that's just the textbook perfect type of scenario. But sometimes it, you know, it doesn't play out that way. But, uh, you know, I'm glad that your mom did raise you in such a way where you would, you know, be in a place where you could, you know, could cry out to the Lord, even in the middle of all your brokenness. Yeah, my mom, you know, and my mom would chase me down. She wouldn't... <laughs> She wasn't just, you know, a parent to kind of be like, make your own choices. You know, she would, she would come and find me out in the middle of a field somewhere and I'd see a minivan pull up and I would be like, <laughs> how in the world did she find me? But What's she your mom's wouldn't. name for the record? <laughs> Wendy. She's like an FBI agent. <laughs> and <laughs> I wouldn't know how she would do it, but she would. And she would beg me to stop, cry, um you know, and do everything she could, call the cops on me, yeah. hide my keys, <laughs> everything she could do. Took my debit card one time, <laughs> and it, nothing was going to stop me. And I had to come to that end of myself to where I was, I was so miserable that I knew my mama couldn't help me. Um, I knew a man wasn't going to help me. And I didn't have any friends. I'd lost all my friends. And I was alone. And usually, I mean, you know, you hear people say that all the time. It's like when they're in jail or prison, they're finally alone and, like, completely beaten and broken down. And then that's when they cry out. But to me, that's like, you know, I've always heard you say that the Lord loves a broken and contrite heart. And it was like... I was finally that broken and that helpless. Yeah. And he stepped in. That's good. That's really good. Thank God for his mercy and his grace and for a praying mama yes. that would track you down <laughs> yes. out in the middle of any field, yes. anywhere, <laughs> even when she didn't have any GPS or no. share my location. No. 
<laughs> she just knew. I would see that minivan pull up. What <laughs> <laughs> kind of the world did you find me here? Angeline. Yes. From the great state of Alabama. <laughs> Michigan. Michigan. Same thing. Yes. Just kidding. So from Michigan, how in the world did you make it to the ATL? What's your story, Angeline? Well, my story is uh, my story happened gradually, and I made it to the ATL when my mom and stepdad divorced. My sister that already had lived here in Georgia was a real estate agent, and she found my mom a nice house, and my sister was going through a divorce, my oldest sister, my other one, and she wanted to move down here with my mom, and then my brother wanted to move because I have a really small family and I had just got divorced so I'm like well you guys can't leave me so I want to move down there too with my kids so we all just moved down here literally at one time (laughs) no that's how that happened and then my stepdad moved to California was there drug use like before you got to Atlanta yes my drug use started early as fun it was, I smoked weed. I think I was like 13 and started drinking at 14. And my brother's like two and a half years older than me and we'd have bonfires. So my parents, my dad would actually buy, he never drank. My dad never drank. My mom did, but she didn't get like crazy drunk, but he would buy the alcohol and take the people's keys. They would have to stay, but he didn't want me running around drunk or leaving, so it was acceptable to drink and then just, you know, camp out, sleep by the bonfire. I mean, it was fun. We'd all smoke weed by the bonfire. I mean, cops would show up. We'd all run into the woods. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was fun. We'd ride four-wheelers, you know, get stoned and drunk. We'd, you know, it started off as fun. Yeah. And then, you know, I got older... I had my children, and I was married at a young age, and I ended up getting a divorce from him, and I went back to school. I got my GED. I, went, I was going to college to be a medical assistant, and I got introduced to cocaine on the weekends. So I went out with a friend of mine, and they wanted me to try that out. So I was nervous. I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen to me, but I ended up doing it. And of course I loved it because I (laughs) was addicted immediately. (laughs) So I started doing cocaine on the weekends just for fun, just to go to the club. I didn't, and my family never knew. I lived on my own Periodically, I lived in an apartment because I could afford it because I graduated from medical assisting, and I was functionable. I didn't work and do cocaine. I would wait till the weekends and just get like a little 50 sack or whatever, <laughs> and I would drink, and then, you know, that was it. My parents never knew like because I never wanted to disappoint my dad, mm. and I just never told them. They never had a clue. They knew I drank, but they didn't know I was doing coke at all, so... Um, that was, everything was always just for fun in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then I moved here and that's when my, well, my dad wasn't there for one. He moved to California. This is when my parents split up Mm -hmm. because I was always worried about, 
you know, my dad, because he always encouraged me, I always was worried about disappointing him. So when he wasn't in the picture, it was like, you know, he's not here. So my mom never really paid attention to me. She didn't know any of the signs. And I got introduced almost immediately because I came here looking. Well, when I moved here, I came, I went out and I wanted to find a hookup right away for the weekends. So let me, let me, so so your dad moves to California. Mm-hmm. So he's this person in your life that you obviously admire, you love him, respect him. Yes. And did y'all have a y'all had a close relationship? Yes. And so when, when 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 he left, mm-hmm. I mean as as far as like what like would that would that really do to you? I mean, was that something just like just your world shattered or Yeah, because I just I never had a close relationship with my mom, and as soon as the as soon as she got introduced to the internet, she found a man on the internet, mm-hmm. and he was from Florida, and so she immediately started accusing my dad of cheating. My dad had the same routine. He was a lieutenant in the Coast Guard, went to work, came back. I mean, I could literally tell you his whole day what he was going to do by the like hour. And all of a sudden, he's cheating. And I'm like, there's no way, Mom. Like, he's going to be here in, like, an hour, home from work, with lunch meat. <laughs> like, right. he, he's going to be here. Like, yeah. he's going to bring us our little chocolate eggs. I mean, like, <laughs> this is exactly what's going to happen. He's going to make coffee. He's going to go to the bathroom. <laughs> like, I yeah. know what he's going to do. He's not cheating. But I think she was just covering that up because she found a man on the Internet. So... She wanted a divorce. There was no like there was no changing her mind. He begged her. He even moved her here. He wanted to stay with her. I never seen my dad fight with my mom. He would never argue in front of us. It was just to me, I just couldn't believe it because my mom is like almost 80 or 80. She's 80. And so I've lived here for 16 years. And so they got divorced so late. I just didn't understand. Like it, it was, it was like even though I wasn't a little girl, it still affected me. I can only imagine how I, I, it affects younger kids, mm-hmm. because I was like, why is this happening? The comfort of my home was tore apart. I'm going to another state. I worried about my dad. Like, what's he doing in wow. in California? So That's, it wow. really is devastating. You know, I, I think we just live, and I'm, I'm not. You know, going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I don't think that we understand, you know, like the the devastating impact of divorce and what that does to to people and into their lives and stuff. So obviously, you know, some trauma there, some framework that you had for your life. Now he's out of the picture, and probably something that was already put into motion anyway. Now this process is like now now this you know this person that you know maybe at some level was kind of a that kept it at bay. Mm-hmm. Now it's all all bets off. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I tried to hide everything from my from my dad. And um like I said, yeah, like I said, he wasn't in the picture anymore. So and I, I guess underlying I was definitely hurt. So which fueled everything. So I, I moved here and I thought I was going to get a, a little hookup for cocaine at a club one night and a girl, we went to the bathroom and she, you know, chopped out a little line and I did it and it was meth. 
So I'm like, you know, what's this? And she told me, and I'm like, what? Like, I never even heard of it. I never heard of it. But instantly, of course, I was addicted. I loved it. And it was just, it's been downhill from there. So I've been, but it was like slowly, that was fun. It all, that turned fun, but it turned really bad really fast. But I, I hid it from my mom for a while and I would use off and on and I would be, I was sober for three years and then I relapsed, but I never got treatment because nobody really knew what was going on. And, and then one day my sister had told my mom what I was doing, but I used with her as well, but she told my mom what I was doing and my mom wasn't having any of it. And she kicked me out. So that's where everything started going downhill. And I have been incarcerated numerous of times, but I'd always want to get out and use. I had a really hateful heart towards people, towards my mom. I thought everybody was out to attack me, and it was their fault. And it wasn't until this last go around in jail, I was in jail for a year, and I got... I did get close to God, and I didn't want to do this anymore. I didn't. While you were in jail? Yeah. Oh, wow. For the last time. <laughs> yeah, what, what did that look like? I knew, because I knew I was going to be in there for a while, because I got another possession charge, which pulled my first offenders, and I had charges in other counties. And so when I got pulled over, or pulled over and arrested, I knew I was going to be gone, gone away for a while. But mm-hmm. I was done like I was at the point where I didn't I didn't have anywhere to live I was living with somebody that I didn't even care about and I remember I had my own room there where I was living and I would just I was I was done I was crying in my room I'm like how am I gonna get out of this I because my I had no support I had no family support no good friends and somebody told me oh just go to a church just go in there and ask for help. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go in there totally addicted and be like, hey, I need help. Like there, I, I didn't, I was scared to get help. But that was still the, the feedback on the street was, you know, they're saying, hey, go, they still saw the church as a place. Like if you go there, you could, you could get help. That's interesting to me. But anyway, and yeah. then, and, and again, help me understand too. So your dad, where is he during all this? In California. California. So you're not talking to him really anymore or anything. You're just out there. I would only call him every once in a while because I was using. Yeah. And so our relationship got super distant. And then the first time I got arrested, I had called my mom and he had passed away while I was in jail. Mm -hmm. And that's what he knew, though. He knew that I was using and I was still like out on the street using. So that's that killed me. That mm. you know, he died thinking knowing that he was struggling. I was struggling out there and that's not me. But although I do know he did raise me really tough and strong and smart. Mm-hmm. So it took me a long time not to be sad over me not being able to tell him that I'm gonna be okay. But in my heart I know he knows that yeah. I was gonna pull out of it. Yeah. There's no way I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So what was your background with the Lord? Like, so you get into jail and you're thinking, hey, I need to get close to God. Like, what drove that? Did you have a background in that? Yes. I, well, I was raised 
as a Jehovah Witness, mm-hmm. which they're very they're very strict. Mm-hmm. So I was raised really strict. The, their teachings are, are similar to you know Christian teachings. Mm-hmm. The Bible. I mean, they just make up their own thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go too much. <laughs> No, I, yeah, no, yeah, probably, yeah. I, no, I totally get what you're saying. Where they will, yeah, just just with the deity of Christ is yeah. where they where they miss it. Yep. Yeah. So I was I knew about God. I at one point was mad at God mm-hmm. because I thought God was attacking me because everything I was losing my kids, I lost my house, and of course it was God's fault. But yeah. I was. You're like, I didn't pray the prayer that Summer prayed. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing this on your own. Yeah. So, but I knew he never left me. Like, I knew when I was on the street, I mean, there, I knew he was always there with me. I, I, so I've wow. always been close to God. But when, so when I got into jail, um, I read Job. And he wow. went through all that. And I'm like, wow, you know, even he... He went through so much. I read um, Proverbs and Psalms. And I mean, those... Okay, scholar. (laughs) (laughs) But those things are... Those are what really like started started me opening up my eyes. And I I prayed to God like... Any Bible studies there? Yeah. They would have Bible studies in jail. Are you going to Christian or are you going to J-Dub? No Christian. Okay, good for you. <laughs> yes, Christian. Sorry, I didn't interrupt. You were saying you and you prayed. To, you prayed to the Lord. I did. I prayed to God that because every time I would get out of jail, I would use. I already knew I was going to use. I would have it ready for me when I got out of jail. But this uh-huh. time, I'm like, I want you. I told God, please put me on the right path. Like, obviously, I am not going on the right path. Keep all the people away from me that aren't supposed to be around me, and please guide me on the path that I'm supposed to be on. And he did. I mean, he, I got through jail. There was a, a sense of peace while I was in jail. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't scared. I knew when I got out, I knew what I had to do when I got out to, to be sober. So, and then, of course, I landed up in good landing, yeah. and it was a blessing. I wasn't even supposed to be here. Yeah. So this alone is a blessing, and uh, I'm here with tons of people that care about me. I feel like a family here, even though I don't have a family right now. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. I remember your first night, the Friday night worship. Yeah. Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. I, oh, my gosh. That was scary. I was yeah. scared. I didn't know. I. You didn't have any stuff? I had nothing. Yeah. Nothing. They just gave you some clothes or something, like uh, just some stuff up there at the jail? Not Just a pair of 5X sweatpants <laughs> and a T-shirt and my shower shoes. That's Come what on. I left with. Thank you, Gwinnett County. <laughs> You didn't want to get up and speak that night, I don't think. No, I was scared. I felt gross. But the girls here welcomed me with open arms. I mean, with toothbrush and toothpaste and clothes. Summer gave me clothes. I still, I think I still have some stretch pants and a little sweater that she gave me. I mean, it was really nice. I felt so, like, right away I was like, because you don't get that on the street. People steal stuff from you. They're taking from you. Yeah. And I come here. And it was just so giving and loving. It was yeah. just wonderful. Come on, God. Yeah. I, I just, you know, it's just, I mean, hearing your story, and I've heard, obviously, bits and pieces working with you. Um, but but to hear the whole thing, you know, and just to think about, like, what you've you've gone through and, you know, what you're fighting for. And, and I've watched you fight, and I've watched you put up real-time clean. And even when you have done some of that it doesn't mean that life is just there to you know to come back and you don't walk back in and 
you know, everybody's there to, to, to cheer you on. I mean, I've watched you face some real battles and, and really people that, you know, you would have expected with what you had accomplished that would have, would have, would have been there to cheer you on weren't, um, but you're still here. That says a lot about who you are and really even, you know, God's grace and your commitment to him to say, I, I don't want to go back to that life. And you could, you know, that, that life is always there waiting for you. And we look at those numbers of, you know, why do only 10% of women make it into treatment? And because it it's really, it's going to be more readily available to you than it is going to be a guy. And um, in the sense that, you know, guys are going to be more willing to give you dope and yet you stay the course and you're fighting for this. And then you're also now helping other women get out of it. So just an honor to have you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. It's huge. So Summer, um, coming back to your story, um, I know you told, you know, quite a bit of it. And then, you know, talk, talk to me more about your story and, and, and what got you here. So the first time I drank, I was 12 years old. And then that's really when I started grabbing for anything and everything. And like I said, my dad was in and out of prison the whole time since my mom and him had gotten divorced when I was eight. And I prayed for him all the time. You know, I wanted God to save him. And I was 17. I had actually just had a miscarriage. I was six. I was 16 when I had a miscarriage, and then that really, uh, really upset me, and uh, kind of pushed me deeper into uh, trying to cover that up. And then 17, my dad committed suicide um, in May, and. When that happened, it was like, it was horrible. It was horrible. It was, it feels, it's different. I feel like it's just different with um, suicide. You know, any unex, like, unexpected death is always hard. But, like, if your loved one dies in a car wreck, that's sad. But to know that someone was so miserable and just hopeless that they would take their own life is it, it's a whole nother feeling. I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but you know, and then when that happened, uh, that really kind of pushed me and I really started, uh, drinking and yeah, I mean, abusing. and so you've already dealing with these abandonment issues, you know, father disconnects, you know, never really present in and out of prison. I mean, are y'all talking periodically, you know, during all of that? He uh, he would write me letters when he was in prison, mm. and but I was young, and I never would write back. Or if I wrote back, it was probably just like two or three sentences. Mm-hmm. I was young. Yeah, good. And, um, but he would write me and draw me stuff and try to send me some things. And then when he would get out of prison, we would talk um, just randomly. I never really had a connection with him again because he would get out and probably do good for 
couple months and then I wouldn't hear from him again. And then I would be told he was back in prison. So I didn't really have a relationship with him mm-hmm. at all. So at what point, I mean, did you ever, I mean, obviously because of the situation, it's having major impact and having a major impact on your life. But would you, I mean, was there, you know, times where you would really acknowledge, okay, my dad is not here and you would, you would real, uh, you know, be very conscious about the, the situation? Yeah, I remember, I remember being young and telling my mom that I was upset because I would be around my other friends and I would hear them say dad and daddy. And I remember telling my mom I was upset because I don't ever get to say that. Mm. So, I mean, I was aware of it. And, and, and again, I was always told, you know, my father in heaven loves me. I have a father in heaven. I don't need an earthly father and all that. And that was, you know, I would try to believe it. I would try to hold on to that. But I don't think I really grasped what that meant mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Yeah, but, you had language for, for a concept, but that really wasn't, um, you know, your, your full identity at that point. Yeah, and even, and even when they would say that, I didn't know what a father was. So, I mean, even if they were saying I had a father in heaven, I don't know what, the only thing I can compare that to is my dad who was a meth addict and in and out of prison and, committed suicide i didn't know how to measure what was what so you you send you off into this this dark place you're drinking you know you you go through through all of that you pray and then you end up yeah so i went down to the altar and i said that prayer and i didn't drink for like two weeks (laughs) And I remember thinking, that's like a big deal. Because it had been a long time since I went two weeks without having anything. Yeah. And and I didn't drink, and I was happy. And I remember one night my cousin, who's in a band, was playing. And I wanted to go, and I was telling myself, I'm only going to have one drink. I'm not even, well, it started off, I'm not even going to drink. <laughs> You know, it's like at some bar in Macon, but I was like, I'm not even going to drink. And then I got there and I was like, I'll have one drink. And I think I ended up Having that 40. night <laughs> trying to break into a house and I have a scar <laughs> on my leg <laughs> because of that. <laughs> because of that. So neither, I didn't have one drink. I, I have one drink and then I committed robbery. <laughs> <laughs> yes, basically what happened. <laughs> Seemed like a great idea. How it hit me. And so, of course, that started again. It started the drinking again. But it wasn't like before. It wasn't fun now. It was like every time I drank, it just changed. I don't really know how to, like, describe it. It just changed. It was not the same. I, I had even worse hangovers. Um, 
actually, I thought I, was, I started having anxiety and panic yes. attacks. Oh, man. And I really thought, I thought that it was anxiety and panic, panic attacks, but it was withdrawal from the alcohol that would send me into the panic and anxiety attacks. Yeah. And I had never had any of that before. Man, that, that's really profound you know whenever it, it goes from it is no longer fun and it's miserable but we continue we're just like no this this used to be fun like i remember with a friend of mine from from high school when i went and visited her at college like after i'd been through treatment and i'm thinking okay i'm back with one of my high school friends and you know we're going to go out to this bar and we're going to drink and you know and it's going to be fun and and literally it, it is blackout drunk you know what I'm saying? i mean like and i just remember just thinking like it like it's just it's just done like it's just it's literally like what the life that i used to know that was at one time fun it is now a living hell and no matter where i go and who i'm with and how i want to try to control all these outside variables to create the scenario it is now a living hell yes i remember being up in my room pacing back and forth, uh, trying to decide if I wanted to drink. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I would go back and forth, and I'd say, no, I'm not going to. And then I would be like, maybe I can just have one. And then, you know, just back and forth, trying to decide. Mm-hmm. And then finally, after like two hours of doing this in my room, I would go down there, sneak, get whatever to drink, and be up in my bedroom drinking with like tears falling down my face because mm-hmm. I just didn't understand. I didn't know why I was so obsessed and why I felt like I needed it even when I didn't want it. Yeah. So my last month of probation, I had through that whole year, you know, I never completely stopped doing what I was doing. And the last month she surprised me with a test and I failed and I feel like that was God's, I feel like God was in that. And I failed, and she told me I could finish out my probation of 30 days in jail or in a rehab. <laughs> so, of course, I picked a rehab. And I went, to a, I went to a rehab, residential, and then I went to another rehab in California. And then I came here to Good Landing, and... I have been here ever since. <laughs> I think I'm like one of the oldest clients. I think it's like Trey, me, then Charlie. <laughs> I'm the longest standing person here. <laughs> it's because I'm founding partners. Yeah, because <laughs> I love this place, and you know, and I my time here hasn't been perfect, and I've messed up. But because this is a Christian facility, I feel like. They have shown me the grace and mercy and all the things that I used to hear but never saw like actually played out in someone's life. And just the women, when Chelsea came in to be my house manager, just learning and seeing that people really do live this way and they really try not to cuss (laughs) or, you know, whatever. (laughs) I mean, just... Reading the Bible verses and, you know, my relationship with the Lord is so different now. And since my time here, my relationship with the Lord 
is so different than what it was. I do see him now as a father. I love him, and I know he loves me. And the women here, I mean, I've made, like, a lifelong friendships and things that I've learned here I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. And now that I'm working here, it's amazing, and it's a blessing. It's such a blessing to see the girls come in and know where they are and be able to speak to them and tell them that there is hope and to not give up. And I just love this place. I love the women. I love that we're a Christian facility. I love counselors, therapists, Trey, Charlie, Daniel. I love everyone. And I'm thankful for everyone awesome. that has been here. It's been an incredible journey to see you here, walking in your calling, doing what you're supposed to do. It hasn't been easy. There's been a lot of adversity. Um, and, um, and it says a lot, you know, because I know that especially early on, your tendency to, to run whenever things got tough and then now to see real adversity and for you to fight through the lies and the deception and all of that to be able to take your place on what God has for you. I mean, that could be a whole nother podcast by itself, but I just want you to know is a, you know, is the is the founder is someone who has been called to lead this place like the the leadership here recognizes that and i just think it's remarkable so this week y'all we have had the emphasis on women in recovery and to be here with summer and angeline two miracles two strong women who have fought and have trusted god and even when it didn't make sense and you know i just can't even imagine with what y'all get faced with you know on a on a daily basis, on a weekly basis of just draws back out there into that life. But you stay here and you've made it. I mean, even whenever, and it's never, and I don't care what anybody says, like it's never perfect. You know, some people might not be under the microscope like that we are in, in the treatment world, but um, there's no such thing as a, as a perfect story. And then, but to be able to work in such close proximity um, with the people who are here and to see the struggles. And it's just real life and that God is in the middle of it and He's given us grace to walk this thing out. So any final thoughts? We'll run part two then. Thank you all so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.